The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation 1, 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is the word of the Lord. Today, we are beginning our five-month-long study through the book of Revelation. In a lot of ways, I think this is going to be the most important series that we've ever done here as a church. Um, See, the book of Revelation is the last chapter in the unfolding story of God, the Bible. The story that began in Genesis, the book of beginnings, ends here in the book of Revelation. The story of us, right? The story of all of humanity that began in Genesis is marching toward its culmination. And that consummation is shown to us here in the book of Revelation. Now, why is it important for us to spend this much time, five months, it looks like, thinking about the ending to the story of God? Now, that's really the only question I want to answer for us today. I'm going to throw a bunch of facts at you. I'm going to throw a bunch of information about the book. Hopefully, you've already read the intro. Um, But the only real question I want to answer today is why study Revelation? Why think about this last chapter in the story of God? Hopefully, I'm going to give you several reasons this morning. First, it's the climax of the story of God, right? the, The climax of the story depicts for us the end for which every human being and the end for which the world was created. So one of the reasons we need to study it well, actually, it's kind of the same reason that, like, when, when I, I was a wrestler in high school and college, and one of the things that my coach always used to do in practice, or sometimes before practice, would he would have us get this picture of ourselves standing on a podium in our mind, right? Your tournament's coming, something's coming, get this picture of yourself on the podium, And if you can capture this vision of this expected future that you want to have, when I tell you to do another burpee in practice, you won't say, why? Right? When I've got to do another lap, I won't say why because I have the picture in my head. What I'm doing now is working towards this ultimate, this reality that I want to see take place. See, my coach knew that if he could get the future in our mind's eye, like a picture of the future in our mind's eye, in our imagination, we could do today in practice what we needed to do to accomplish our goals, right? Now, Aristotle said, man is a goal-seeking animal. His life only has meaning if he's reaching out and striving for his goals, uh, last week, I, I heard an interview with Tyson Fury, and Tyson Fury is um, a world championship boxer, and he has a very unique story. As he, after, the day after he won the world championship, he woke up the next morning in the deepest, darkest depression that he'd ever experienced in his life. 
He said after he had accomplished his goal of being worldwide boxing champion, he woke up and he had nothing to live for. He went on, I think it was like an eight-month bender on alcohol and drugs and left his family. And he was uh, about to commit suicide when he felt God say, don't do it. And he dropped to his knees and he gave his life to Christ and God changed his heart in that moment. And then God kind of reordered his desires and gave him a new goal. And he began to live again kind of for this goal. See, everyone lives towards their goals. And if you run out of goals, if you run out of something that's inspiring you, you really run out of stuff to live for. We all live towards something. And so our, our ability to see the end to which we are headed drastically impacts the way we live our day, our day-to-day life in the present. To put this in theological terms, we are teleological creatures. Teleological, tele, tele, comes from the, word, the Greek word telos or end or goal. We all have some idea of the good life, some idea of where things are headed, and we live, even without cognitive, we don't even consciously think about it, we live towards that idea, vision, dream of the good life, of the end. I was recently reminded of how important it is to have the right end in mind when I was reading a biography on Elon Musk. Elon is a billionaire genius, often compared to the character Tony Stark in the Marvel comics and movies. He was one of the founders of PayPal. He created, and he's the CEO, I think, of Tesla, which makes electric cars. He's CEO of the boring company that is trying to solve LA traffic by drilling an underground tunnel under the city. And he's the founder of SpaceX, that's making rockets and is obsessed with going to Mars. Elon is a very driven man. And early on in his desire to prove himself, he had this desire to prove himself by getting rich and doing things people said he couldn't do. But then, much like Tyson Fury, after succeeding, after becoming a billionaire, he found that it didn't make him happy. It didn't really give him a reason to wake up in the morning. So what he did as a logical person was he went back to his story of humanity. See, he needed a story to make sense of the world. He had everything anybody wants, right? He had money, he had success, he had power, he had fame, he had family, he had it all. More than likely, whatever you're looking for, he already had it and he woke up and said, it's not enough. So he goes back to his story of life, his story of humanity, the story that makes sense of the world to find out how to make sense of his own story. But Musk's story is a sad story. See, Musk's story is a story with no author. In his story of creation, right, there was nothing, and then somehow there, be, there was something, and then that something somehow became life, 
And then life has now evolved and we've gotten to this place and you look towards the end and he is without a doubt, we are headed for either a solar flare, something, the world is going to run out of energy, the sun's going to burn out of energy. We're, we're headed for destruction. See, his story is a lot different from the story of God, the story we get through the scriptures. But everyone's interpretation of life begins and ends somewhere. So Elon, as a naturalistic evolutionist, looks at the end of the story. He says, okay, we're going to run out of resources on the earth. The sun could burn out its energy. We're all going to die a cold death. He looks at that end and he says, okay, that's my purpose. What? How how do you get purpose there? Here's his purpose. We must colonize Mars. That's what wakes him up in the morning. His story says earth is going to burn up and be gone. So obviously our Hope can't be found on earth. So what wakes up Elon Musk, one of the smartest and richest men in the world, is I'm going to build a spaceship and go colonize Mars. That's what wakes him up in the morning. Elon says without that purpose, he couldn't keep on living. What's the the point of making cool stuff if it's all just going to burn up in the end? What's the point of having children if we're all going to just burn up in the end? See, Elon realizes, what many of us fail to realize, that the end of the story matters today. The end of the story gives today's life purpose or it gives us no no purpose whatsoever. Now, that is exactly how the book of Revelation is meant to affect us. We are to read it and say, Now I know how to live my life. Now I know what I'm here for. Now I understand why I need to wake up today, why I need to love my wife today, why I need to make disciples today, why I need to worship God today, why I exist today. And the clarity with which we see the end will influence the way we live today. Which is why if you have this pathetic vision of the end of the world as you getting beamed up into heaven like Scotty on Star Trek, and then you floating around on a a cloud and singing Amazing Grace over and over and over for eons and eons, it might not change the way you live today very much because it's a pathetic vision of the future. Hey, colonizing Mars sounds better than that. But that's not the vision we get of the new heavens, the new earth, and the book of Revelation. So, I've only got three verses to work with today. We're going to go Revelations 1, verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We're going to work our way through that, and I hope to answer the question, uh, why, why study the book? All right, so let's just jump into this this morning. We've got a lot of work to do. We're going to have to put on our thinking caps a little bit. This is not a simple story. Um, it's going to take some complex ideas, uh, and I think it's going to be good. I think we're going to get some benefit out of it. Okay, let's go. Re- Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 
The first sentence gives us both the subject and the nature of this book. The subject of Revelation is Jesus Christ. Here's another reason to study this book. Because ultimately, this book is about Jesus. Now, the word revelation has a couple different meanings. First, it means literally to unveil something. If you go to an art show, a great piece of art may have a veil over it until the time comes to show it to the public. Then, the revelation happens, and it's unveiled for all to see its beauty. The same is true of Jesus in the book of Revelation. When you read of Jesus in the Gospels, what you are mostly seeing is Jesus veiled. You see Jesus in his incarnation, right? Joel told us this morning, the old Ricky Bobby, Jesus in his 8.6 ounce, beautiful baby Jesus, right? that we get this idea of Jesus. We see Jesus in his incarnation. That means when he puts on flesh, God the Son puts on flesh and he comes and he surprises us by being nothing, by being humble, by being poor, by being a baby, by being powerless. He takes on our likeness. But in Revelation, no more baby Jesus, no more humble, lowly Jesus. We see Jesus unveiled. We get to see a glorified and exalted Jesus whose glory would cause all of us to jump into the bushes and hide before it. We will take a long look at that next week. I actually can't wait to preach. If you stay, I might just do it after this. Because when John sees Jesus unveiled for the first time, Scripture says he falls at his feet as though dead. That's the response to the exalted Jesus. All glory of man. Boom. We're nothing in front of it. So this is a book about a revelation of Jesus. It unveils Jesus to us, not just the humble suffering servant we see in the Gospels, but also the exalted, glorified, sword-wielding king of kings who rules the kingdoms of men and kills the dragon that's been haunting God's good creation since the Garden of Eden. Now, all of us need to spend more time meditating on this Jesus. Our kids need a vision of this Jesus. No character in the Marvel universe can hold a candle to this Jesus. I wish I could just, I wish I would have thought of this beforehand and I would have went through right now every Marvel character and showed how Jesus was better than him. We need that. Our kids need that. Listen, Jesus in a manger, it's important for us, but that's not awe-inspiring to children, right? Right? You're dealing with a bully at school. Well, Jesus, you know, he was in a manger. and Jesus, How about we give him a picture of this Jesus that's going to deal well with all bullies once and for all when he comes in his kingdom and his glory, Right? This picture of the resurrected Jesus, we all need it to reorient our desires, reorient our loves, reorient our imagination to live rightly in the day-to-day. So, 
revelation is about unveiling Jesus. Secondly, this word revelation also discloses to us the nature of the book. That's to say that this word in the Greek, apocalypso, was actually a type of literature. It's a genre that no longer exists today. I spent some time writing about that in the introduction, so I'm not going to spend much time on it this morning. Suffice it to say that apocalyptic literature concerns itself with revealing unseen realities in, in, in like pictorial, very sensational ways. It has to do with the end of the world as we know it. It has to do with the ultimate destruction of evil and the establishment of an eternal worldwide kingdom of peace. All apocalyptic literature deals with these things. And by using this word, the author, and, and this word apocalypso, and also there's, there's some other key phrases in this first introduction. He says, uh, the things that must soon take place, and the time is near. Now these are like, these are common phrases that are meant to draw us back to something that was said before. The author is trying to draw us back to, listen, the book of Daniel, where God is depicted as the one who, quote, reveals mysteries and, quote, makes known what is to be in the end. Now, when we're reading a book, right, you're reading Harry Potter, you don't just pick up and read the last chapter. If you do, you, you don't understand, you probably are going to lose a lot of context, right? Well, when we flip to the back of the book here and we go to the book of Revelation, if we're going to understand it, we have to understand what he's playing off of. Where is he getting his information, okay? The author here is quoting directly from Daniel 2. So if we're going to understand it, we need to understand what's going on in Daniel 2. Now let me just ask you, how many remember what was going on in Daniel 2? Oh. All right. That wasn't a real test, because guess what? I didn't remember what was going on in Daniel 2 when I first read it. Okay, I don't expect you to. But we're going to go back to Daniel 2. And I think if we do, I th I'm just going to narrate it for you. You can go back and read it today. I hope you do. I'm going to tell the story, and I think most of you have probably heard it before, and you go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I, I remember what's, what's going on there. So before we go forward in Revelation, we've got to go back to reacquaint us with what's going on in Daniel chapter 2. Here we go. To keep this quick, first off, in the beginning, Genesis, the kingdom of God is created, okay? Then in Genesis 3, the kingdom is lost. The two subjects rebel against their king and the kingdom is broken, right? Then later in Genesis, the kingdom gets promised to Abraham. I'm going to be your God. You be my people. You obey me. You follow me. I'm going I'm to restore this kingdom. Then what happens? We, God raises up David and Solomon and the kingdom is foreshadowed in David and Solomon, but then what happened to the Davidic kingdom? What happened to Israel? Well, they committed cosmic treason against God. They refused to love him. They refused to worship him alone. They refused to obey him. And so what did God do? Listen, God allowed Israel's neighboring kingdoms to invade them and carry them off into exile. That's where the book of Daniel starts off. 
Nebuchadnezzar was a real life man. He was a king of Babylon and he came into Jerusalem and besieged it and he conquers the kingdom and the nation of Israel. He conquers God's kingdom there and he carries off its many inhabitants the best of the best, the, the brightest minds, the wisest among them, the most, uh, the culture makers of the kingdom. He carries them off into Babylon to serve him and his purposes, okay? That's where Daniel, the book of Daniel starts off. Now, Daniel was one of these men who King Nebuchadnezzar carried off into Babylon. And Daniel was a young man who loved God. He worshiped God. He prayed to God daily. He had an intimate relationship with God. He was very wise. God had given him the gift to interpret dreams and visions and the gift of wisdom. Well, here's what happens in the second chapter of Daniel. In the second year of their captivity, Nebuchadnezzar has some crazy dreams, okay? These dreams kept reoccurring. They kept waking him up. They kept giving him anxiety. They were troubling him. And he didn't talk about them to anyone, but he was greatly troubled about them. So this is what he did. It was a pagan, pagan nation, right? Worshiped all kinds of different gods. He had all kinds of magicians and enchanters and, and dark arts people. And that's, that was just common in that day. And so he calls all of those people together and he says, guys, come here. I've been having some dreams that are wigging me out. I don't know what they mean. I don't know what's going on. I need you to tell me the dream and tell me what it means. Now, if most of these people are frauds, right? Most of these people are frauds. They're fake that somebody tells you the dream and they're like, you know, any other people that you see at the fair or see somewhere else are like, they're, they're dream catchers or something. And they're like, tell me your dream and I'll tell you what it means, right? They listen, all right, and then they try to interpret some things. But Nebuchadnezzar, he was wise enough to know that most of those are, are full of it, right? They're, they're not real. So he says this, no, 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 I'm not going to tell you my dream. You tell me my dream and tell me what it means. Deer in the headlights, they're all in trouble. And he says this, and if you don't do it, you're all dead. These dreams were serious to Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's not messing around. He doesn't want a fake interpretation. Tell me the dream, tell me the interpretation. Well, obviously, none of them can do it. And so, he, so Nebuchadnezzar says, go kill them all. Well, Daniel was in this group. He's in this cadre of people, and they come to kill him. He's like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? What's happening? Well, nobody, nobody can interpret the dream. So you're all gonna die. I, I can do it. I'll do it. I can interpret the dream. I do these things, right? They say, okay, come. Then Daniel goes back to, oh, God, please give me the interpretation of this dream. <laughs> right? He, Daniel ha- didn't know if he could do it. He didn't have the, the vision already. He, who can do it? We're either going to die or I'm going to try. <laughs> Let's take a risk here, right? Me, I'll do it. So he goes back to God and he prays and he asks God to give him the interpretation. And Daniel goes to God in prayer and asks him, reveal, listen, reveal this mystery to me. See, this is what apocalyptic does. Reveal this mystery. So God, and then God tells Daniel what the king's dream was and what it meant. And 228 says this. This is what Daniel says. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King 
Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Interesting. Daniel, in this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and then Daniel kind of has the same dream. Daniel sees this image. It's a man. It's a statue. And its head is gold. Its chest and arms are silver. Its middle and thighs are bronze. Its legs are iron, and its feet are a mixture of iron and clay. Kind of, see, this is, this is apocalyptic. It's, it's pictures, right? So Daniel sees this, thing, this vision, and then he sees this stone. And it says, this stone gets cut out by no human hand. So can you imagine this picture, huge statue, then you see this cone, just maybe it's like laser. Laser gets cut out. This huge stone floats over and smashes the iron and clay feet into pieces and then smashes all of the rest of the statue. The statue gets crushed by this stone and then the stone becomes a great mountain that fills the laden this type of literature is. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, tells him this. Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, you see why I'm freaking out? What does that mean? Daniel goes on to interpret the dream. He says each one of those parts of the, of the, the statue represent a kingdom of men that will rule the world. Scholars today, looking backwards on this now, identify these kingdoms. First, the kingdom of gold on the head was Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. The second empire, the silver, was the Medo-Persia empire. The third empire, the bronze empire, was the Grecian empire under Alexander the Great. And then finally, the Roman empire was the iron mixed with clay. And Daniel says... This stone that's cut out of the mountain will overrun them all, will smash them all. Now, this is a reference to Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus is called the stone several times in the Gospels. When Jesus arrives on the scene in Mark 1.15, Jesus begins his ministry by saying, the kingdom of God is is here. Now, if we could just get a second to realize how bad that statement is, what Jesus is doing in that moment. He begins his ministry by saying, I am the stone that Daniel saw. I am the one who will overthrow all the other kingdoms of men. My kingdom is the one who will smash all others, and of my kingdom, there will be no end. Then in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 through 45, after Daniel interprets it, this is what he says. I think I got it up here, yeah. And in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, look, that shall never be destroyed, Right? All those great empires of the past, they're gone. God's kingdom will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. 
just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. Okay. Thousands of years, this was this in Daniel was written thousands of years before where we're at here in the book of Revelation. And or hundreds, hundreds of years. And John here starts off this book by saying it's a revelation of the future that must soon take place. He is making sure the reader can make some connections to their Old Testament. This is language right out of Daniel 2. He's saying the end times is now. The final kingdom is now. Jesus has come. He's the stone that was cut out by no human hand. God himself became a man. God himself put himself into the womb of a woman. No man did this. God himself gave the kingdom to Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh and he came and lived a life that we can't live and died the death that we deserve and he was resurrected at the right hand of the Father and the kingdom of God is now. Jesus has been exalted and Jesus' kingdom has been inaugurated and now that inaugurated kingdom is moving toward its final consummation. So this, is, this book is a revelation. It unveils Jesus, an exalted, glorified Jesus, and it unveils the final consummation of his kingdom. It unveils the overthrow of every other evil empire known to man. The kingdom of God will have no end. But how did we get this revelation? How do we come to possess it? Look at right here in chapter one, verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, look, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by, look, by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. A lot of important stuff there. Who wrote it down and how do we get this, this information? It was a four-stage process. God gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to the angels. The angels gave it to the apostle John. And John wrote it down for all the churches. Now, why is that important? First off, we need to know it's important because who it comes from. It comes from God. But we also need to see some interesting pieces there, right? It says this, an angel showed it to him. He says, write down everything that you saw. Think about that. This came as a movie in John's mind. And John is trying to write it down. Can you imagine seeing a, an, a, an image or seeing a movie and then trying to write it down in your mind? Like you're visualizing and then you're trying to write it down. 
Well, what would happen? That, that means John here is going to be struggling at the end of the leash of human language to depict what he's seeing. It's going to be difficult to put into words what he sees sometimes. And that helps us make sense of the book as we're reading it and we're going, whoa, what is going on here? He's like at the very end of the leash of his language trying to write it down. So we see it's coming from God. It comes through Jesus. It goes to an angel. It goes to John. But then look, and specifically in verse four, it's a letter written to seven churches spread across Asia. Think about that. He said it's going to God's servants, Christians. What's the big deal about that? This book was written to Christians living in the first century. It was a circular letter. What does that mean? It means it was sent to one letter. They were meant to read it, pass it along to the next church, pass it along to the next church, pass it along to the next church. What does that mean? That means this revelation was meant to have real life applications to its, to its original audience and not just today, 2,000 years later. This book was meant to be relevant to its original hearers, not just to us today, 2,000 years later. Now, what what does that mean, Justin? Many people read this book like it's some kind of instruction book for the end times or sometimes it's gonna give you the exact date and when Jesus Christ is going to come by. The book couldn't have more meaning for us today than it did for its original audience. Why would he have it read to its original audience? Right? You see that? Let me get through it a little bit more. Let's keep reading. Verse three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and blessed are those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now this, I want you to think of a three-layered cake here. This is a three-layered blessing God promises a special blessing for those who read aloud this book, those who hear this book, and those who keep what's written in this book. And the keep is the most important. Obviously, you can't keep it unless you hear it. You can't hear it unless you read it, right? At the end in chapter 22, John unifies all three layers into one, and he says, blessed is the one who keeps these words. Hear me. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to change people, change the hearers, change the readers into people who obey the stuff that's written in it. This book was not meant to tickle our intellectual fancies. It was not meant to divide or confuse God's people. This revelation was given to make a real world impact in the lives of ordinary, normal Christians. This book is not about chart making or code deciphering. This book is not meant to stir up speculation on when Jesus is coming back. Guys, if you hear people talking about codes, Turn off the TV. 
ignore them. They don't know what they're talking about. Listen, Jesus's UPS tracking number is not written in this book. I don't care if you, what language you read it in. I don't care what mathematical algorithm you put it into. His UPS tracking number is not found here. I was nine years old. I remember going to a special little conference at my church. My parents brought me to. Back then, there wasn't much of a kid's ministry. You just came in your pajamas and kids would sleep under the pews. I was nine, so I was right at that age where I was probably not going to be falling asleep during church. Probably was still in my pajamas. Who knows? But I remember a so-called prophet who had written a book in 1988 that was 88 reasons Jesus was coming back in 1988. I was nine. First off, it scared the living hell out of me. As I was sitting, and I could say that because literally that's what I was scared of. I was like, oh, it's late in the year. I, I repent now. <laughs> but then obviously, you know, this is my last Christmas. Oh, I can't wait. Right? Right? Christmas was extra special that year. And New Year's was a letdown. All right? I'm going to tell you that. Listen, all of that stuff has done damage to the church and it's foolish and it makes a mockery of the word of God. I say this, it's, it might not make complete sense because when he says this is a prophecy, he's not as much saying, I'm giving you this book to reveal everything that's exactly going to happen in the future. As much he's saying, this is the word of God. How will you respond to it? Please hear that. This book was given to Christians who were being persecuted and killed, right? That's what's going on. They were being persecuted and killed by the evil emperor Domitian at the end of the first century. And John's gonna tell us next week that he is writing this letter from prison, from the island of Patmos. Think about the Arsenal Island, right? It's like a military island. That's what Patmos was. It was a military island where they housed criminals. And John was in prison for preaching the gospel. So he's in prison, right? He's got nothing to do but think about Jesus. And Jesus gives him this vision through an angel. That tells us something important about this book. God is not just giving these struggling Christians information that would only pertain to us as we're 2,000 years later. Think about that. How, how pointless. Can you imagine these struggling Christians being persecuted and killed and they're just arguing over, who's the Antichrist? Hmm, who is he? Is this talking about the United States of America? Right? Debating what, what's your position on the millennium? The millennium falcon? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. This is not information given just to tickle their fancies. Listen, revelation is about transformation, not about information. The book of revelation is full. It is meant to 
fill people up with faith in Jesus when everything around them gives way because they know how the story ends. This book is about a compelling vision of the future that God is creating that is meant to reach back into our today and shape the way we live our day-to-day life today. So we're gonna do this. We're gonna work through this. He says, blessed is the one who reads it. Now listen, I'm I'm gonna send one second on this because it's important. Later on, things get crazy. And we're going to have to, we're going to cover like two chapters in one week. And because John and God says, blessed is the one who reads it, that means we're going to stand up and we're going to read the word of God in here. And it might take 10 minutes. And we'll have our best readers do that day. (laughs) All right. But that's why we're doing it. Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words. Blessed are those who hear and hear. Blessed are those who keep what's in it. Triple blessing. Now, I want you to think about this. Some of us can go, oh, wow, so neat. I love, you know, I love sci-fi. It's so neat to think like this. The first century Christians... Christianity at this time, when this book is written, is a very small sect. It's made fun of. It's dismissed. Hardly any historians were writing about it because it was so minuscule and so meaningless. Their leader was crucified. He suffered the worst possible death any human being could possibly experience. He was humiliated, publicly humiliated for all to see. This sect is nothing. It was a minority religion. By this time, historians speculate that it was probably a couple thousand people, a few thousand people at most. It was an outlawed religion by the Roman Empire because they said Jesus was Lord. And obviously, the Roman Empire said, no, 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 Caesar is Lord. And if you disagree with that, you're going to be persecuted and you're going to be, you could possibly be killed. This Rome was the largest and most dominant empire in history up until this point. Listen, Rome consisted of uh, roughly 25% of the world's population. Currently, the U.S. has 4% of the world's population. This was, Rome was the most advanced empire, the most culturally sophisticated, right? They had all the philosophers, right? They were the most educated, that had ever existed. And they made Christianity illegal. But here's the miracle. The miracle that even secular historians have a difficult time wrapping their head around. By the fourth century, Christianity overtakes the Roman Empire. Rome falls, right? 80, 70. And Christianity becomes the majority religion. By the year 300, according to the historian and sociologist Rodney Stark in his book on the rise of Christianity, by the year 300, there are 6 million Christians. 200 years. A couple thousand to 6 million. 
Christianity becomes so prevalent that the emperor Constantine makes Christianity Rome's official religion. Whether he converted to Christianity, it's a big argument. But he at least sees there's so many Christians here. We're done with paganism. Christianity is the new official religion. Listen, how does that happen? This isn't like sci-fi. This is historical fact. We're talking about sociology. We're talking about history here now. How does it happen? How does the most dominant culture in the world who persecutes Christian gets turned upside down and becomes Christian itself? The Jesus we read in Revelation is real. He's alive. That's how it happens. And the living and resurrected Jesus commands our attention and our devotion and our love and our worship and our obedience. And when Christians really live like Jesus commands, when they read his word and listen to his word and obey his word, God promises this triple blessing on them and the world takes notice. The question is, are we going to study Revelation for information or for transformation? Is this about speculation or is this about spiritual formation? I pray it's the latter. Our city needs, they don't need more weirdos. They don't need more people with sandwich signs yelling at people. They don't need more people with six pages of charts that can tell you everything about the book of Revelation. They don't need more code deciphering wannabes. They need transformed disciples who see a resurrected, glorified Jesus and they're willing to lay down all their golden calves, all their false worship of all the gods of American Christianity, the gods of consumerism, the gods of individualism, the gods of sex, the gods of money, the gods of power, the gods of fame, the gods of superficiality, that they're willing to lay down all those other gods at the feet of the only God who stands exalted over all the kingdoms of men, the resurrected Jesus Christ. Mm. We are the 27th least churched city in the United States. If the gospel can change Rome, the gospel can change the Quad Cities. I pray as we start this series that we'll be stepping into it, not just for neat, cool, interesting information, but for life transformation. Let me pray. Father, you have written this story and it's more compelling than the story of naturalistic evolution. It's more compelling of the American story of just get more uh, and be more successful and be more rich and be more, have more pleasure than our parents before us. Your story is more compelling because your story is what we were created for, the worship of a holy God. Father, as we stand in your presence this morning, many times we don't feel like we can cozy up to you because you are so different and so other and so 
holy. It'd be like cozying up to the sun. It would be our destruction. And yet you clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. You clothe us in this protective layer that enables us to enter into your presence with thanksgiving and joy and worship. And we only get this righteousness, this protective layer by putting our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he did what we could not do. He is our savior and our king. And so Father, anyone who has not put their faith in you, I pray that they would do that this morning. And I pray that you would light us on fire for your glory, for the worship of your name. I pray that we would desire to read the book of Revelation and we would just eat it up and drink it up over the next five weeks or five months and you would absolutely transform us from the inside out for your glory and our good. As we come to your table this morning, Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, the night that you showed your ultimate humanity, your ultimate vulnerability, you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood shed for you. It's the, co- it's the blood of the new covenant. It means we no longer relate to you based on, on our works and our behavior. We now relate to you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Christians come this morning and we're reminded that it's the body, it's the blood, our Savior Jesus, that makes us right. May we eat it in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.